0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. My name is David Buckley and I'm the Paul Weber Endowed Chair in Politics, Science and Religion here at U L in the Political Science Department. Uh, I'm also the Interim Director of the Center for Asian Democracy, which exists to promote scholarship, teaching and outreach related to democracy and human rights across Asia. Uh, To be a little bit more accurate, I guess I should have said welcome back because the Inside Asia podcast series was a regular feature of CAD here at UofL uh, in the before times under the leadership of Professor Jason Abbott. We are excited to be building back the Center for Asian Democracy's programming uh, and relaunching this podcast series is a key part of that. We'll be releasing episodes regularly, focusing on the prospects and challenges facing democracy across the region. Uh, We're very grateful for production assistance from our graduate assistant extraordinaire, Tori Dahl, who's making sure we sound as professional as possible. Uh, And we're also grateful for our colleagues at UofL's Digital Media Suite for their assistance. We are thrilled today to be getting started by featuring our new colleague at CAD, Dr. Ashani Dasgupta. Dr. Dasgupta has recently joined us as a postdoctoral fellow here at CAD after completing her PhD in anthropology and South Asian studies at the University of Pennsylvania. As you'll hear, Ashani's research is at the intersection of democracy, citizenship, and migration. It puts the spotlight on many of the challenges facing democracy not only in Asia, but abroad as well. Before we get started, let me tell you a little more about Ashani's work. In her research, she centers the refugee as the key political figure of our times, whose actions both indict the global order of nation states that creates regimes of violence and exclusion and reveal the possibilities of alternate political projects. Her research explores the formation of de-terr- ter- deterritorialized Tibetan nation, a polity that emerges through political mobilization and resistance practices across discrete settlements and communities, democratic participation in an exilic political order, alternate forms of citizenship, and practices of preservation and community building, while simultaneously navigating a hostile and unstable geopolitical landscape that creates the conditions of statelessness. Ashani's essay, The Burning Body and the Withering Body, Embodied Resistance Practices in the Tibetan Community, won the 2019 Best Graduate Paper Prize from the Association of Political and Legal Anthropology, and she completed her dissertation with distinction at Penn. Uh, At Penn also, she was a graduate fellow at the Andrea Mitchell Center for the Study of Democracy uh, from 2020 through 2021 and the Wolf Humanities Center in the 21-22 academic year. We are so thrilled to have Ashani with us here in Louisville. Um, And maybe before we turn to your research agenda, Ashani, uh, let me say first of all, for the digital record, how glad we are to have you here to talk about your work. Uh, But first... Maybe you can tell us a little something about what stood out as you've been getting settled into your new home in Louisville these last few weeks.
1: Okay, uh, thank you so much, David. Thanks for the, you know, warm introduction, and it's a real privilege starting off the Inside Asia podcast once again. Uh, so I've, I've been thrilled by Louisville. I've had a wonderful experience thus far. Um, I've been attending free music concerts and art festivals, and there are so many, you know, green spaces in the cities in the city itself, as as far as urban spaces go, um, there are two things that I've noticed and appreciated. Um, and one is the political signs in people's yards, whether it's, you know, Black Lives <laughs> Yard Matter. sign, absolutely. Yeah, yard signs. <laughs> you know, it, it could be Black Lives Matter or at the LGBTQI flag, or I've seen so many signs with uh, we support unionization of baristas, which I loved and of course other cities have it too but i'm seeing so much more in louisville and the other things that the other thing that i was really thrilled by was the halloween decoration in the yards <laughs> you know these really elaborate ones they are like kind of like art installations and i have been really liking that enthusiasm one month before halloween it, it kind of makes you see how much family and community is important to people here so these are like things that are just like standing out. I'm sure I'll discover more as we go by. Well,
0: on that last point, I will have to recommend to you that you make your way to uh, a street called Hillcrest in, in my own Crescent Hill neighborhood at some point in time. This is a street that is so famous for its Halloween decorations that they hire sort of private logistics companies to coordinate the visitors wow. who walk up <laughs> and down the street. Um, and when people sell their homes on Hillcrest, they just sell their Halloween direction decorations along with them because they're so elaborate that they uh, that they uh, don't have any reason to take them with them once wow. they move to a normal street? Yeah, that yeah, is yeah, so fascinating. Yeah. So been. we'll talk more about that offline. Yeah. Um, that's great. Well, again, it's been it's been great to, to uh, see you getting settled on, on campus here. Um, I've already said a little bit about your research that you're looking at this intersection between refugees, citizenship, democracy, uh, and the modern state. Uh, these are all obviously sp- Small topics, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you got into this research? What is the substance of your research agenda to, to this point um, that's gotten you uh, to the end of your doctoral studies?
1: Uh, sure. It's a uh, substance is a, is a very, uh, I think it's a tall ask, but I, I, I'll try. Um, the Tibetans, you know, have often been conceptualized as a religious people. Um, words like nonviolence, spiritual. Uh, All these become kind of defining words when we think about the Tibetans. However, when I went to Dharamshala, I saw firsthand the complexity of their politics and the way in which they were sort of forging their own unique political vocabulary, vocabulary, having debates and discussions that would link their history as a people to modern political aspirations as a people. Uh, So I began to observe their political practice and saw um, that, you know, through these practices they were carefully constituting what I came to call the deterritorialized Tibetan nation. And I narrowed it down to two types of practices. So we have citizenship practices, which include voting and paying taxes, electing representatives, but also performing particular civic duties, helping their compatriots navigate uh, border regimes, you know and other forms of community organization and building and the second type of practices that i got very interested in observing and and being a part of were resistance practices which often resulted in a sort of a nationalistic galvanization across discrete settlements and communities so i would say at the at the heart of my dissertation lies these practices that transform these settlements from sites of displacement and even dispossession uh, to those of national belonging.
0: That's, that's a great overview. I mean, can you tell us a little bit, uh, this might be especially useful to sort of graduate students in our audience. Um, how did you wind up narrowing in on this particular dissertation topic as an anthropologist? Um, what was the process through which you came into graduate school with a certain set of interests and turned them into a focused research project that you could tackle in the course of a dissertation?
1: To be honest, David, I think my involvement with the Tibetan community was just by chance. Um, it began in 2009 when I went to Dharamshala as part of a Students for Free Tibet student camp. And it was there that I met and I, I, I learned about the Tibetan resistance movement, but I also met with political prisoners, uh, spoke to politicians, and interacted closely with Tibetan activists. Um, from then on, it was literally year by year, my commitment to understanding the Tibetan movement grew. And I did my master's from the Dada Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, um, which was also about the exiled community, uh, about their built environment and the spatial dynamics of Dharamshala. Then uh, in graduate, graduate school, my department at Penn was extremely supportive of my work and I was able to spend my second year of graduate studies in Dharamshala learning Tibetan. And later in my PhD, I won a, a few fellowships that allowed me to conduct field work for a year and a half. So I landed up spending a lot of time in the field. Um, and in with every stint in the field gave me a deeper perspective on the Tibetan movement and of them as a people striving not just to survive, but to build despite displacement, despite having experienced conflict, violence, and flight, and continuing to sort of experience stateless precarity. Um, and I guess the truth is I kept learning in the field and the generosity of my friends, my teachers, and my interlocutors in sharing their lives, their thoughts, uh, deepened my investment. And for every, this is, I think, something that I have to say, that for every grad student, the field work is complex. It is filled with anxiety and apprehension. And it was the same for me. Um, but I think my commitment was sharpened uh, by sort of an inspiration that I felt while living amongst the Tibetan. not just because of their political movement, that was just one facet of it, but because of the world they were creating, and I got very invested in that.
0: Yeah, so you've used this term a couple of times already, this idea of a deterritorialized nation. It's in the title of your dissertation, right, which everyone obviously should go and look up, but also you, you've talked about it here. Um, you know, it's an interesting... Concept right, um, nation and nationalism are frequently tied to territory. Although obviously every nation doesn't get to rule over a state. Um, what do you mean when you use this term deterritorialized, and how does that sort of change the politics of the communities that you've uh, lived in and studied?
1: Yeah, I think that, I guess that gets to the heart of my uh, work. Uh, So the Tibetan polity has uh, been conceptualized in various ways. You know, most often it has been framed through a lens of return um, as a rehearsal or as waiting for a sovereign future. Um, While this is not false, what particularly drew me in was another perspective. Um, You know, behind these institutions that resemble those of the modern nation state, uh, a new sort of different political reality was being forged at least that's what I noticed. And there were different modes of citizenship were emerging, different forms of civic duties, from you know providing free medical aid to helping those without documents cross borders. Lives whose very essence was precarious and fragmented uh, were continuing to build something unique, something even radical. Uh, this deterritorialized Tibetan nation, as I have conceptualized it, is has uh, has three defining um, elements. Uh, it is emergent; that is, it is formed in contending with the precarity of statelessness, and it is processual. It is transforming in the process of na- navigating through sort of an unstable and even hostile geopolitical field, and it is generative. It gives rise to different political possibilities. This nation is is also what I um, think as non-sovereign because refugees occupy a position outside the tripartite basis of sovereignty, which includes citizen, state, and territory. However, at the same time, the detritorialized nation continues to be sort of enchanted by sovereignty in its emulation of parliamentary democracy.
0: Yeah, I agree. So you use another term there, democracy, um, that, uh, that's obviously important to us here at CAD and important to your own work. Um, let's flesh that out a little bit. Um, the word obviously can have more procedural meanings. It can have more substantive meanings. Political scientists tend to come at this from one direction. Um, but for you as an anthropologist, what does it mean to say that there's a Tibetan democracy? Um, and if so, what distinguishes it from other usages of the term democracy?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because Tibetan democracy is very unique Uh, in a way it kind of envelops a pre-exilic monastic governmental structure and maintains pre-exile sectarian blocks which are based on ethnic and regional affiliations rather than on partisan politics based on political ideology. In fact, um, political parties are banned in, in Tibetan democracy, and this became all the most stringent with the law passed uh, by the Tibetan judiciary in 2018. However, obviously, Tibetans do vote, they pay taxes to uh, the Central Tibetan Administration, um, and largely ad- adhere to the laws set by the judiciary. Um, the administration, in turn, runs a range of educational, employment, and welfare schemes, uh, that provide um, you know that sustain the community, and um, this entire Central Tibetan Administration is recognized purely through its citizen, and no no state has um, seized it as a national democracy. In fact, legally, uh, the CTA or the Central Tibetan Administration is registered as an, an NGO. Anyway, going back going back to the question that you posed. Um, the legislative body, which is the parliamentary uh, body that has um, representatives from the four regions inside Tibet, uh, 10 representatives each, uh, two members each from the four Buddhist sects and two from the pre-Buddhist Pun religion and two members each from North America, Australia and Europe. And uh, people elect their own representatives. But in the absence of... uh, political parties, what lands up happening is that much of the contention in the parliament um, is comes from, you know, factions and voting blocs. Um, additionally, I think it was 2011 that the Dalai Lama retired from political life, and he continues to be a significant force in the democracy, and things are not done without his approval. Um, another factor is that monks get to votes. Uh, they vote for their representatives of the religious sect as well as representatives of their regions, and um, there has been a lot of debate and discussion in the community, and it is ongoing. Uh, Tibetan democracy is an evolving feature um, regarding revamping the structures based on region and religion. So.
0: Okay, okay. So I have to invoke the powers of the podcast moderator here uh, to focus on my own research interests that you just put on the table. So it's, so it's your fault. Um, when listeners hear about Tibetan nationalism, probably for non-experts, uh, the first face that literally comes to mind is the Dalai Lama's. Um, You've already told us a little bit something here about the very unique role that religious authorities play within the democratic structures of Tibet. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little more broadly, even outside of the formal institutions, about the political role that you see religious authorities playing today in the Tibetan uh, community in exile. Um, And if you have any reflections on sort of how that role has changed over time, you mentioned even contention over the the structure of formal legal institutions. Uh, What shape does that take? What kinds of options are on the table?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, religion is a really significant aspect of Tibetan life and its socio-political formations. And religious leaders um, perform the role of community leaders. Uh, the Dalai Lama, as you mentioned, uh, is of course almost, and here I emphasize almost, is almost you know, unanimously revered. Um, Tibetans often both publicly and privately ascribe the success of the exile community to him. People have claimed and uh, have known to have escaped Tibet just to come and see him in exile. There's a deep reverence even within, the Tibet, within Tibet and almost every uh, large-scale protest movement, um, including the self-immolations that have been happening, uh, began with the slogan Free Tibet and Return of the Dalai Lama um and and a single word by his Holiness the Dalai Lama can move mountains uh let me give you an example um in i think t- 2006 um there was a activist politician in india who strongly urged the Dalai Lama to ban the wearing of animal furs and pelts or I speak against the wearing of animal furs and pelts in tibet which has been a long standing custom and is a sign of status and wealth so, the Dalai Lama uh, basically, in a religious lecture, said that people should stop this custom. What landed up happening inside Tibet was there was mass burning of these pelts, uh, which had been collected by families through generations. They videographed it and then they sent it into exile through these networks of media. And it was millions of dollars, and there was a lot of conversation about how they could have donated it to a museum because some of these spells cost like millions of dollars. Anyway, uh, so he has a very significant role in the community. And there's a deep anxiety in the community about what will happen after the death of the Dalai Lama. And the Chinese state, as you know, ironically, uh, an atheist state has said that only it can give the final permission regarding the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, even when the, while the current one does not legitimize this demand. And I think part of the reason behind this interference is because the Chinese are aware about how significant the religious institutional heads are for the Tibetans, and they want to sort of hollow out these positions. Um, for instance, uh, in 1995, they uh, the, giant, uh, the state kidnapped a six-year-old boy who was anointed as the pension Lama, the second to the Dalai Lama, just three days before, and he and his family have been missing for 30 years. Uh, and the state has appointed another pension Lama in his place. And all you know, all Tibetan organizations, activist organizations, um, even those that are hardcore democratic ones, like. Tibetan Youth Congress or students for Free Tibet have kept on protesting against this disappearance um, in exile. These are exile organizations, um, and you know all this being said, uh, Tibetans are also very keen to further separate politics from religion. Young Tibetans, uh, they want to do away with the two vote system and separate electorates for monks. They are critical of monastic interference. Um, Many of them have lamented the absence of space to disagree with the Dalai Lama without facing backlash from other community groups. Um, I've also heard Tibetans say that they lost their freedom because they were too religious. Um, So in many ways, these are the transformations that we are seeing in the community as they navigate through this particular sort of
0: world order. Would you say, do you have an impression of any generational differences among the monks themselves in terms of how they perceive their... Uh, role in Tibetan society
1: i think uh, well most of my work i would say were with political activists and political actors um i can't really represent the monastic community as much but i do think that there there is a strong um commitment to democracy especially amongst the monks who who do land up becoming representatives in the parliament or members of the uh, or i mean members of their uh, regional or religious sects. And they uh, a lot of them are deeply um, critical, uh, and this it was a recent event that happened, of various religious structures that have still continued to have sort of a prevalence in the community. For instance, there was a, a really famous incident of a monk critiquing the oracle, um, the institution of the oracle, um, and that itself, Got a lot of backlash, but so so it's the community is very variable and complex, and definitely there are people uh, there are people from the monastic community that want democracy to um, to to be to separate religion as much as possible. All
0: right, all right. So you've talked about protest a number of mm-hmm. times. Obviously, a lot of your research is with the sort of activist uh, community there. Um, Again, listeners may have some stereotypes about what protest looks like, especially the very distinctive form um, of, of the self- immolations. But more broadly, what does protest look like when you're an ethnographer on the ground in the Tibetan context in exile? Um, how does it matter to your protest that you're in a territorialized nation? How does it change the the politics of protest?
1: Um, yeah, I, I you know, I guess for a community very much held together by their political commitment to a Tibetan nation. Protest kind of plays a very important and defining role. Um, so when I started my project first, self-immolations had become a significant, a significant form of protest in Tibet, uh, with some occurring in a- South Asia. I was a part of many candlelit vigils and press ceremonies for self-immolators. Um, during my fieldwork, I also landed up volunteering for a long period of time at the Tibetan Youth Congress. Uh, which is the largest and the oldest grassroots democracy organization in exile um, they were the ones who had uh, who were, who had initiated um, you know almost all of the um, hunger strikes unto death in exile they were also very significant in the protest mobilizations that were happening um, through my involvement with them through my interviews um, and you know just, being in a community that is so defined by a, a protest, it was revealed to me that, irrespective of the sort of external outcome of the protests, whether it was solidarity promises from the Indian state, or media coverage, or UN response, or UN, U, European Union's response, um, a significant emphasis was also paid to internal galvanization. And, you know, speaking to this internal galvanization, um, a dear, dear friend who was. Um, who sat on a hunger strike in 2015, a hunger strike unto death, uh, once told me that um, even if I die, it, it would I would have no regrets because many like me would be born. Uh, and it is through these galvanizations that the deterritorialized nation emerges in their discreet settlements, uh, sort of dedicated to a Tibetan political future. Uh, and the impact of these protests spread deep into Tibet. Uh, both through surreptitious media channels and through other forms of communication. For instance, even um, before the advancement of the internet, they used to send out cassettes across the border with uh, uh, recordings of what was going on in exile. And today people send out both videos, images, information about protests leading to reaction in exile and vice versa. this sort of internal momentum creates a sense of community a sense of people fighting together dedicated to a national national future even you know in the absence of territorial contiguity so
0: yeah no that, that's really fascinating the sort of multivalent uh, audiences right that, that the protest movement has in mind for for their tactics That's mm-hmm. uh, a great level of detail to hear about um that level of detail of course comes with Extended time in the field, right? With the uh, real immersion uh, in the field site that comes along with uh, with ethnographic research, um, everybody tunes into podcasts to hear about research methods, right? That's what we're here for. Um, so let's give the people what they want. Uh, you're an ethnographer. Um, how does this change how you think about? designing your research not just the obvious that you're gonna to have to be there for a while um, but things like who your subjects are what concepts you're trying to assess in the communities uh, and, uh, and even how you see what you see uh, when you spend time in the field what difference does ethnography make to your research do you think
1: um absolutely uh ethnography i guess gives me a sort of perspective that perhaps other forms of data analysis like surveys and structured interviews might not yield Uh, Just just to give you a short example, is that uh, in 2017, for instance, Tibetan refugees who were born in India before 1987 became eligible to procure Indian citizenship. Um, However, many of them who are eligible continue to reject it. Now, it is possible to read this through a lens of a collective rejection of Indian citizenship and dedication to political sovereignty. However, on the ground, Tibetans have varying opinions. Um, Some are said privately, some are announced publicly, for why they choose or do not choose to take up Indian citizenship. And I guess it took ethnography to show me that it was often a result of compulsion. Uh, For instance, because the legal requirement of taking up Indian citizenship requires the Tibetan to leave his Tibetan community, which further sort of entrenches the dispossession by causing a secondary dispossession um, and c- increases the vulnerability of, of, of um, refugees right uh, within these varying des- decisions I also saw something unique I saw a defiance that refused the um, that that refused the category of citizenship itself something you know that had been denied to them for generations um, citizenship, To another nation or the absence of did not impact their national commitment uh, or their identity or their movement or their commitment to their movement Um, and as my one of my interlocutors so beautifully articulated citizenship is just convenience and so so to go back to your question i feel like each method has its significance right on one hand one needs needs the large-scale data to formulate policies but at the same time one needs the nuances that ethnography can provide to make sure that those same policies have an effect or to understand how people interact with those policies and different communities interact with those policies. This is particularly true when we are tackling like daunting issues like climate change, um, but can also be true at relatively small scale uh, levels, such as when state and development organizations are trying to improve the sanitation infrastructure by building more public toilets which has happened in India and has has not succeeded because of various reasons Um, and then there is the interpersonal level of ethnography that can also be very very complex uh, especially because my interlocutors um, and a lot of a lot of uh, people these days are very aware and critical of how academic discourses try to simplify them (laughs) I remember this one instance where I was um, chatting with a close friend of mine uh, late into the night and um, we were just talking and suddenly she turned to me and asked, Ishani, do you write down everything I say to you? And uh, I felt this deep embarrassment, and then became defensive. You know, it's uh, I think it's an anxiety that we we carry. How to how to be true to your interlocutors, your friends, your teachers, even when you move out of the field and into the academy.
0: So. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's great. That's great. Um, so um, we've been talking mostly so far about the particulars of the Tibetan community, but uh, the Tibetan community in exile obviously exists in multiple places and in multiple political contexts, but probably the most important one is India, where uh, most of your uh, field time has taken place. Um, I think it'll be pretty well known to most listeners um, that India is, on the one hand, the world's largest democracy, and also simultaneously uh, a place uh, like so many of our homes that is facing real strains on its democratic institutions right now. Um, maybe first of all, just by way of quick introduction, um, what do you see as a couple of the primary challenges facing Indian democracy today, uh, in your view?
1: Um, so yeah, I think some of the biggest challenges that India is facing today is, um, is violence against minorities from Muslims to Dalits to Adivasis. Um, but it's also like, it's, Extended beyond that, anyone who poses a real threat to the state's agenda becomes an enemy. You know, we have social workers and student activists who have become political prisoners and are languishing in jail on false charges. Uh, some of them are old and in dire need of medical attention. Um, you might have heard of uh, Father Stan Swami, um, an 83-year-old Jesuit priest who spent his whole life working for Adivasi uh, tribal rights he was a tribal right activist and he was imprisoned under terrorism charges at the age at that age he had parkinson's disease and he died in jail and it created an a, a, almost a global uproar but there are still too many political prisoners um, in, in jail who were imprisoned on similar charges um, censorship is at an all time high and intellectuals who are critici- critical of the state of state violence are called urban naxals referring to the Maoist guerrilla fighters who, you know, operate uh, across a large part of central India. Um, Critics become targets of trolling and sometimes even violence. And I think what is so heartbreaking is the popular support that the ruling party has garnered, which enables them to perform these acts of violence with impunity. And the sort of level of hate politics has just increased at an everyday scale. however and, and still there are pushbacks and um, both in the public sphere where people are risking their safety for the survival of indian democracy and various regional electoral electoral bases which continue to reveal the political complexity of the country by uh, the various elect- electoral outcomes uh, so yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean it's interesting so the, most of the challenges that you just talked with us about um, might not at first blush sound directly like they have much to do with india's tibetan community Um, but of course we know from all sorts of other contexts that refugees and other vulnerable minority groups are often caught up uh, in these periods of political instability Um, what would you say has india's democratic instability impacted the lives of tibetans in its borders or are they relatively isolated from these changes you've just been talking about
1: Um, Actually, you know, the right-wing state hasn't affected the Tibetan community to the same extent um, as the way in which it has affected, say, the Muslim Rohingya refugees who are made into boogeymen whose camps have been burnt um, or the Pakistani Hindu migrant refugees who have seen more sort of active overtures by ruling party politicians to provide them with citizenship, but it has not materialized as expected. Um, the Tibetans, on the other hand, have to operate across a very complicated geopolitical terrain, and this changes from regime to regime, and sometimes even within the same regime. Um, for instance, in the initial part of the Modi government's rule, the Indian state was squeezing up with China, and this directly impacted the Tibetans. Uh, the exile state had planned a big, cel- a big sort of ceremony and celebrate. Um, event uh, in Delhi. They were going to invite Indian politicians and it was talked about for months and they had spent a lot of time, effort and money into organizing it. However, it was suddenly canceled. They weren't even allowed to access the venue. Uh, However, then uh, uh, the Chinese state increased border aggressions and things have sort of flipped. Uh, There is more of an acknowledgement by the Indian state of the Tibetans the tibetans the tibetan who was martyred uh, at the indochina border tenzin Nima, was honored by both the indian state and the tibetan exiled state which which is a very rare uh, occurrence in terms of the indian state um that being said when forums of dissent are being shut down it's going to impact minorities fighting for their rights and uh, some of the tibetans biggest INGO collaborators have been throttled, uh, like for instance Greenpeace. Uh, And this will definitely in the long run impact their movement.
0: Yeah, yeah. So putting these regional dynamics on the table and the sort of geostrategic concerns of India um, also links into another theme in your research, um, this this question of how the global war on terror um, has or has not impacted Tibetan communities. Again, this is another one of those topics that uh, listeners probably hear with a little bit of surprise. I don't think most would probably put the Dalai Lama high on their list of transnational terrorists. Um, But you've looked at this topic uh, and uh, and and, uh, can tell us a little bit about what has the global war on terror meant for Tibetan uh, politics and diaspora um, and impacted the political communities where you spend your time. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's um, so, uh, you know, the global war on terror basically gave a lot of countries the chance to weaponize the term terrorist and use it against political minorities, particularly those fighting for self-determination. China was no different. Uh, Additionally, the color revolutions in the 2000s had shaken up the autocratic regimes of Central Asia, and they began to crack down on social movements, on social projects that were not uh, under the state's purview. They became suspicious of foreign funding, um, they began to persecute cross-border communities with strong diasporic networks. Um, you know, international security uh, organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization uh, started getting new members and new momentum. So, like with the Uyghurs, uh, China tried to deploy terrorism against the Tibetans uh, in preserving significant Tibetan leaders. Uh, one of them who I write about was Tenzin Delek Rinpoche on, Uh, false terrorism charges. Um, They accused the Tibetan Youth Congress of planning an insurgency, of preparing bombs, of building military camps in India. Um, The Tibetan movement had been largely nonviolent since the 70s. Um, However, with this added pressure from China and the global sanction that the global war on terror was giving countries, um, any mention of fighting back or a, a fight that might in the future be uh, violent became censored in the community, so much so that uh, Tibetans who were struggling for independence faced a severe backlash because they were deviating from the Dalai Lama's endorsed stand on autonomy. And uh, this had quite a cascading impact on the intra-community relations. And uh, it has taken a long time for them to rebuild. And I think they're still rebuilding some of the fractures that have uh, come into their community.
0: That's great. Um, So Tibetan politics are obviously important in and of themselves. Um, They impact the Tibetan community, they impact two of the world's largest countries or the the two largest countries in India and China. Um, But these questions that you're grappling with, state, nation, citizenship protest uh, legitimacy. They resonate across the region that we look at here at, uh, at the Center for Asian Democracy. Um, I'm wondering when you step back from your particular field site, um, where do you see your research illuminating politics um, in other corners of uh, South Asia or, or even thinking more broadly?
1: Um, well, I think it, it, my research will probably, I i hope my research will uh, have a larger impact because you know in a world where states are progressively moving towards the right and where ethno-nationalism and other forms of violent groupism are threatening human rights um it has become all the more necessary to recast ideas of what it means to belong as a nation and as a community um the the tibetan deterritorialized nation for instance is formed through dispossession by refugees who have fled their homeland it is formed in a complex and sort of fickle geopolitical terrain where they have to constantly adapt to avoid erasure and further violence. But on the flip side, it is also formed through an ethics of care as only the precarious can engage in. Um, through this care and their determination against annihilation um, as a people, um, as a community, uh, they build their institution and find ways to belong. Uh, They exchange resources, sort of help each other in the absence of state benefits, and even in the face of hostile states, for instance, Nepal has increased its hostility towards uh, Tibetan refugees. Um, And in my view, the existence of this community outside of the nation state and outside of territorial sovereignty is sort of a challenge to the hegemony of the designs of the nation state system. And... um, I guess there are many lessons we can learn from refugees and the different political configurations that their struggle sort of of gives rise to, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, now this question of of stateless peoples um, and refugee communities and, and their uh, their political projects uh, obviously resonates uh, across South Asia and also uh, right here in, in the US, uh, including here in Louisville where refugees are an active part of our community, um, not just sort of subject to, to exclusion, but also agents in their own right, building their, their political communities close to home. Um, so thanks so much. Maybe as a closing question, I'll ask you to look forward for just uh, a minute. Um, when we're doing uh, a second edition of this podcast in a decade, um, as your book is moving into its second edition, uh, what will have been the most important change in Tibetan politics during that time? Uh, how will it change the community's views of these topics of democracy and citizenship, do you think?
1: <laughs> okay, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to answer it from uh, the perspective that I have sort of built over these years. So Tibetan uh, democracy is, um, like I said, is impacted by the shifts underway in the world at the local, the national, and at the global scales. Um, I, I see like four things that I have, uh, you know, that might, that, that are sh- revealing certain things about the future of this democracy. Uh, recently, there was a self-immolation that, occur- there were self-immolations that occurred in Tibet again after a break of three years and Tibetans all over the world came out uh, to carry out uh, processions and candlelit vigils, took to social media to articulate their nationalism. But it also made me think, what has led to a self-immolation again after three years? And what are newer forms of protest that are underway that would impact and even transform the Tibetan community? The other important topic um, with respect to the community's uh, politics is uh, the passing away of the Dalai lama and his succession he is not only the leader of the tibetan people but he also has a certain international status Um, in india he's considered an honored guest and uh, he's uh, the representative of the tibetan people there um so how will his death shift tibetan political landscape both internal to the community and external externally um, in the larger world, uh, with respect to the Tibetans, and how will that impact their democracy? Uh, the third important factor is the Tibetan community's future in the exile center of India. Um, as Indian citizenship laws deny most Tibetans and their subsequent generation citizenship status, will Tibetans continue to stay, uh, build their communities in the exile headquarters of India? or will they leave? And then what will happen to the institutions? And this is a constant anxiety in the, in the field too. And the fourth important factor is the shifting sort of geopolitical landscape, um, as you know, US and China enter into a phase of nation state antagonism. And as Central Asia experiences destabilization due to the recent war between Russia and Ukraine, and additionally, India's own march towards regionally asserting its power will bring about new alliances and enemies, and Tibetans have to find a way to navigate the shifting landscapes. Um, these are sort of the four big points that have roles to play in the development of the future of Tibetan politics. Um, I think what I do know today is um, that Tibetans continue to be steadfastly dedicated to their identity, nation, and to belonging as a people. They have built ways to do that in contending with hostile and sometimes even abrasive global forces. Um, While I see quite a bit of sectarian rift that might arise in the future, I also see young Tibetans keen on marching forth, vociferous in critiques of institutions and structure, both of their own community and of sort of the patronizing global world order. There are fears that the community will fragment, people will leave their settlements and communities in India, but but I believe that they will continue being involved in creating a nation and in contending with global forces that are trying to stymie their national potential. I also believe that religion might actually recede or take a different form in the political sphere in the coming years. And frankly, the youth is... Uh, very it's the youth is of a different kind right the the young generation and they will bring new forms of radicalism in their leadership and i'm looking forward to seeing where it will go so
0: well, thanks so much. Um, you know, the richness of the case is obviously why you're uh, so well positioned to, to keep telling us uh, important uh, stories, both about the past, but also these trends going forward. And uh, everyone in the audience can hear why we at CID are so thrilled to have Ashani join us um, and to continue to participate in our community here. Um, so to our listeners. We are so glad to be back with you, Um, and uh, please keep your eyes on the Center for Asian Democracies' various social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, etc., etc., Um, and uh, keep an eye on your favorite podcast service uh, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify um, to subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast as we build up a couple of episodes here in the fall 2022 period. Um, We'll be back before long, uh, including with Ashani on the other side of the microphone um, uh, speaking with uh, scholars, activists uh, and colleagues both in the U.S. and abroad about how questions of democracy and rights uh, play out in the world around us. So until then, thanks for joining us and we'll see you before long.
1: Thank you.